CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Hi, this is Josh Marshall. This is the Josh Marshall Podcast. We are on, I think, our fourth episode when we are doing the show remote from from our all of our homes. And uh, as, as is the case for, I guess, the great majority or, or most workplaces that are not considered essential services, we've been out of out of our offices in New York and D.C. for uh, just about a month now, right? I guess March 11th was the... Yeah, yeah you're right. Yeah. Our colleague John Light went into the office this week because he had an appointment in the city and snapped a picture of it all dark and kind of empty, and it was a little bit... Um, little sad, but kind of nice to see it, actually, uh, at least in photos. See the yeah, office. it was it's weird. Been a, it's been a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's, uh, it's always been a, a kind of a funny thing because as an organization, since we're based in New York and D.C., we spend a lot of money on having physical offices, like mm-hmm. a lot of money, right? And, the, and we don't have – and just for our – for our listeners and our subscribers, you know, we don't have like kind of like, you know, kind of fancy white shoe law firm offices. They're right. fine. You know, they kind of they do their job. Um, but it's just, you know, real estate's really expensive in, in, in these cities. Uh, and just for a lot of reasons, I've always been very – I think there are all sorts of pluses to having physical offices and bringing people together uh, in one place. But it is – it's – you know, it's it's a at least for the moment, it's a different reality that we're in. Uh, before we go any further, let me just remind everybody that the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. Uh, they are still up and running as an essential service. Uh, they are located in the Bronx, New York, so they are at the center of the storm, and you can still order their product. So go to Grady'sColdBrew.com and order. You can use the promo code TPM to get 20% off your first order. You can also uh, order them on Amazon.com for what is normally sort of expedited delivery, you know, kind of, I guess, you know, overnight or two days or something like this everything in this new reality is a little a little different so i don't know um i don't know precisely how the uh the ordering schedules uh are working now but as we've said in the last couple episodes uh support small businesses independent businesses and grady's cold brew iced coffee is one of those but again that doesn't just apply to grady's really across the country and it'll depend on where you are and what the safety issues in your area whether that's uh curbside pickup or ordering or whatever you know obviously take account of what is happening where you are located and be safe but also remember that this is a critical time for a lot of small businesses independent businesses and if you want them to exist when this is when this is all over uh support them now yeah it's um in my neighborhood, there's a couple like, kind of local restaurants that are shifting basically to like a retail operation, selling wine, selling mm-hmm. some of their food products and things like that. Almost like a little market kind of situation, which is interesting. So I've been spending maybe a little more than I should at a couple of those establishments lately. Now, is that, how is part. that, are, is it still curbside or are you going, yeah, you go basically in? You order, it, you order it online and then they've sort of set up a table right in the door, yeah. kind of facing outside and you just basically... You pay online beforehand, so you just kind of, it's a contactless pickup. You just kind of get your order and go go on your way, so. Yeah, we've been trying to do that with a different restaurant every Friday, and um, like one place, the Mexican place, is kind of sending, or selling everything in like kits, like taco kits. Here's mm. all the various ingredients. You put it together by yourself. That's cool. You yeah. know, one one thing one thing that I, that had really something I never thought about before, but but I, I've learned now, when they talk about the food supply chain in the country and how it's 
you know, staying online, continuing to kind of distribute food around the country. And I think that's definitely, you know, generally been true. Uh, there are runs on certain kinds of products, but, but I think hopefully few people are, are not in a position where they cannot get food, just a basic level of caloric intake. But one of the things that's interesting is that, you know, you have kind of two supply, uh, uh, two food supply chains, one for home consumption and another that goes to restaurants. Yeah. And one of the big issues has been that you can't, you know, at some molecular level, kind of all foods the same, but that's not really how it works, right? What you, what gets sold to restaurants is just different stuff, packaged different, different, uh, you know, a lot of it's in bulk and stuff like that. So there's been this big effort uh, for food suppliers where they can to redirect towards, uh, you know, home consumption. That's obviously where yeah. they're going to be able to sell it. But you also have, that's where you can have at least some kind of limited disruptions because, yeah. you know, it's it's different. Yeah. All right, well, let's turn to uh, some news happening out in the world. So we just got word before we came on the air that Bernie Sanders has suspended his presidential campaign. Um, you know, in a, in a way, the primary has been over for a few weeks now, right? I mean, the la we had an election last night in Wisconsin that we'll talk about, which was kind of a harrowing display of just, I don't know, Republican cravenness. I didn't even know what words to use to uh, to describe it, but... After Super Tuesday, really, the Biden campaign, it was pretty clear that they were, you know, it was on its way to, to being the nominee. And Bernie held on a bit. Um, not entirely clear why, other than that, I guess he's, you know, has obviously diehard supporters. Um, Kate, any, I don't know, just initial reactions this morning as, as, as Sanders bows out? Yeah, my first reaction, I think, was to feel like good for him because dropping out at this point I think is just good for the democracy like as we saw in Wisconsin and as we're going to probably be seeing in primaries for a while things are just so harried and chaotic right now and I mean especially in Wisconsin you have like a heaping dose of pretty brazen voter disenfranchisement from Republicans but even without that element turnout is down people are scared people don't want to get sick um, and that puts the elections in a very weird place, you know, and I think it's not beyond the realm of possibility, even though you're right. I mean, Biden basically has an insurmountable lead at this point. But what do you do if something happens in a state where Biden was polling like 20 percent up and then turnout is decimated because we're in the middle of a pandemic and then Bernie wins? What do you do about that? You know, I mean, it's such a double edged sword because you can't, you know, is it? Is it a valid election? I, I don't know. It's just there's so many kind of rogue um, variables right now that, uh, yeah, I kind of, my first instinct was good on Bernie for taking that factor out of the equation right now, that in a time when our primaries are very weird um, and turnout might be just nowhere. And, you know, people who are older and have underlying issues are are disenfranchised by the fact that they are taking their lives out in their hands to go vote. Um, you know, he's removed that from the equation and now it's just kind of like we push through until it's safe to vote in person again and we have our nominees and right. it puts a lot less pressure, I think, on states to figure out their primaries quickly. True. Yeah, let's talk about Wisconsin because their primary was, was held yesterday. Their were a number of, I don't know, maneuvers or steps leading up to it to try to work around it, to try to postpone it, either to delay in-person voting until June, which a lot of other states have done, or to extend the absentee ballot deadline uh, past, you know, Election Day, which the United States Supreme Court uh, rejected. And so we saw people out at the polls yesterday wearing face masks. Uh, we saw a couple, I think, really defining images of this entire era yesterday. One was, uh, I think, a, a young woman with a face mask on in a long line waiting to vote um, because many polling places were closed based on, you know, not having volunteers to staff them. Mm -hmm. um, her sign basically just said, this is ridiculous, uh, which I think we can all agree on. It's kind of an understatement. And the, the other, I don't know, just 
really, really bizarre and striking image was the Republican Speaker of the State Assembly, Robin Voss, uh, decked out in full personal protective equipment. We're talking full-length gown, rubber gloves, uh, mask covering his face, mm-hmm. telling voters it's incredibly safe to go out and vote right now as he's like half a step from a full hazmat suit. Um, yeah. Kate, you know, you've been covering a lot mm-hmm. of the a lot of the moves by different states to postpone primaries. You've covered uh, quite a bit of the the Wisconsin maneuvering leading up to the election. Just, I don't know, tell what was your impression just seeing some of those images yesterday? Yeah, I mean, Voss is ridiculous, you know, exactly what you said, that he's clad in this gear and he's telling everyone who presumably doesn't have this gear, oh, you'll be fine too. But on top of that, he was also giving out blatantly false information. He was telling people, if you haven't gotten your absentee ballot, don't worry, you can have it emailed to you. That's not true. That's only true for spoiled ballots. And in fact, it's a huge part of the reason that I think when we see results come out of this, we're going to see a ton of people being disenfranchised because a battle in the courts that wasn't decided till the night before the election, um, the U.S. Supreme Court overturned a ruling from a lower court about um, the extension of how long absentee ballots would be accepted. So the lower court said, as long as it's received by April 13th, 4 p.m. local time, it counts. Postmark doesn't matter. Supreme Court, hours before polls open, say, no, 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 that's not true. It must be postmarked by April 7th to count. So, you know, if you were operating under the lower court's guidance, well, you're kind of out of luck. How are you going to get a ballot within hours on Election Day? Um, So you have that going on. And then, you know, this whole thing was kind of chaotic because Democrats, legislative Democrats and like the state party from the beginning were saying, we need to delay this election. If not, we have to drastically expand the absentee ballot offerings that we're giving people. Tony Evers, the Democratic governor, was not on that ship at the beginning. Um, Wisconsin is also having a ton of general elections this day on the state and local level. Um, And those terms are, some of those terms are supposed to start April 20th. So he balked at the idea of pushing back the election. Um, which kind of put him on the same side as Republicans in that. But he came around in recent days when local officials were telling him how dangerous this would be and um, how impossible it would be to get all this set up when they have a huge scarcity of poll workers and people are sick or afraid of becoming sick. Um, So he flip-flopped over to the Democratic side. He issued an executive warning trying to force the Republican legislature to have a special session to consider delaying the vote. Um, They opened and adjourned that session within 17 seconds, showing a pretty pretty disrespectful um, disregarding of that. Um, and then you had, he kind of lobbed this Hail Mary attempt to delay the election via executive order, which you could tell he himself didn't even think he could do. He had said previously his hands are tied um, when it comes to unilaterally making that decision. So uh, he tried that. Republican leadership immediately lodged a challenge and the state Supreme Court, which has a Republican majority, sided with them, shut down his attempt. And then we had, like I said, the U.S. Supreme Court also along party lines, um, shutting down the loosening of absentee ballot restrictions. Ruth Bader Ginsburg actually wrote a really stinging dissent to that, saying it would result in massive disenfranchisement, that you're asking people to choose between their health um, and the vote. So basically, all of that absolute chaos and just brazen, brazen disenfranchisement from the Republicans because there's a state Supreme Court race being decided. They think low turnout favors their candidate, who's an incumbent. And it's a big deal. I mean, the state Supreme Court has a ton of power, and this is a 10-year seat that they're fighting over. So um, it's just it's just a nightmare. Yeah, and, exa- and-, and yeah. And last night, during the daily White House coronavirus press briefing, Trump was asked about mail, you know, vote by mail, which he said is incredibly corrupt. Uh, He's not a fan of it, even though he voted by mail in the last election. Um, And I guess I want to ask you, Josh, just how you think about this looking forward to November. You've written a bit about just the need to make sure that the election in November can go on you know, not in a normal way exactly, but just that to preserve the kind of sanctity of it. And Kate wrote just this morning about a letter in Florida, uh, election supervisors writing to the governor, I believe, saying we're not prepared to have an all, you know, an absentee ballot election or an all vote by mail election. 
And time is kind of running out. I mean, we're, you know, we're, what, four or five months from election day. And so... It's a little more than that, right? I mean, I'm trying to... Th- yeah, maybe it's, it's about... Five maybe it's closer or six? to six months. Yeah, yeah closer to yeah. five or six. No, I mean, um, I, I don't yeah. know what those... I don't know what the, what the people in Florida said. My impression is that it is probably still possible to do that by the November election. I mean, I, you know, obviously there's a lot of logistics and, 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 and details and we're not, and, and we're not talking about something that would be remotely possible, you know, in the normal kind of, you know, under normal circumstances, but I'm thinking more like what is like physically possible, you know, what is in an emerge, I mean, you know, we, we shut down the whole country. We never thought something like that was right. something that, that, that we'd ever do. I mean, it's my sense that, that most states, if they really treated it as a, you know, it really is a critical national security priority. The whole, the whole governmental system revolves around you know presidential and congressional elections if you can't have that in a in a legitimate fashion sort of all bets are off for the whole society and and it seems to me you 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 need to be sure that you can have an election in which everybody has an equal chance to participate simple as that and um so it's not it's not just it's harder to vote or it's you know it's more dangerous to vote in you know in like what happened yesterday in Wisconsin but it's differential that's the critical critical thing it's going to be considerably more dangerous for people who are vulnerable to this disease it's going to be considerably more dangerous to people in cities who, you know, tend to vote in these, you know, overwhelmed precincts. Uh, so that is is really the critical issue. If it affected everybody the same, it wouldn't, it would still be really bad, but it wouldn't be quite as bad. Um, and I don't, I mean, I'm, I'm curious to see more reporting on, you know, just what is doable. Because again, I have no doubt that these... Um, you know, county election officials in Florida, you know, they're not thinking about what's theoretically possible. They're thinking about the current budgets, the current systems. And I'm sure it is, it is, you know, seen from that perspective, it is, you know, just completely impossible. But the proper perspective is if each state, you know, kind of sat down right now and said, we have to do this. How much is it going to cost? What is a plan that can get us there by November? And I, you know, it's certainly possible that in some sense we won't be in this situation in November. I mean, I'm pretty sure we're not going to be in this situation in November. Right. But it seems it seems quite likely that we will still be in a situation where there's going to be a lot of emphasis on not you know, n- not like, you know, major public gatherings and, and all that kind of stuff. And it could be affect some states and not others. I mean, think about it. Like, let's let's think about um, a situation where things have basically calmed down, you know, still some social distancing, but most people are back to work in some fashion or another. But maybe there's an outbreak in the upper Midwest, right? I mean, so you just have to have a plan in place where you can do some version of vote by mail. And I do, th- I have to imagine that one of the reasons, um, one of the many reasons I suspect that Republicans are so against this is that on an emergency basis, we need to do something for this election. But I suspect that in many states, once people vote by mail, a lot of people are going to go, why do we? Like, why would we ever do it a different way again? You know, now some people, you know, I guess there's, what is it? And I, there's a few states where the whole system is by mail. There's no longer any precincts and voting places and stuff like that. And then there's, I guess, a few states where it's an option, but there's also in-person voting. 
but I could certainly imagine a situation where in states where they move to mail voting, a lot of people will be like, this is obviously the way to do it. We're never going to go back. Well, and that's what happened in the Western states that have it. You know, Oregon was the first to do that. And they kind of just made vote by mail more and more accessible. And the more and more people did it, and then they just reached a point where they were like, okay, we have this down pat, in-person voting isn't necessary anymore, and they went all mail. But I think a piece of it, which you touched on, Josh, especially in the Florida case, and you know, the supervisor didn't elaborate on this in her letter, but political will is a huge piece of this. Like, It might be possible to make a state all mail, but if you've got, you know, if you've got Republican dominated state government and those people don't want vote by mail to become the reality, then you have another obstacle quite apart from budgetary or logistical concerns, um, which, again, I don't I can't say for sure that's the case in Florida, but I wouldn't be all that surprised if you look at the behavior of the Wisconsin Republicans who pretty much just use this pandemic as a cover for sweet, really good opportunity to make sure as few people vote as possible. Trump kind of alluded to that too, right? He keeps saying the quiet part out loud on these, in these situations, which in a tweet this morning, he said, again, you know, vote by mail is corrupt and there's too much fraud and you've got thousands of people in living rooms, you know, Mm -hmm. sending in fraudulent ballots. And then he said, I think a final point was, and it never seems to work out very well for Republicans. So it's basically like, yeah, having fewer people show up to vote generally favors uh, Republican races, and that seems to be part of the calculus here, right? Yeah, for sure. So, Josh, you've been writing a bit, maybe to, just to shift gears a little bit away from Election Day and more towards the, the ongoing just public health crisis. You've been writing about, uh, you know, seizures of medical surpri- supplies. There's this program called, is it Project Airbridge or um, something... It's something, something like with Airbridge, yeah. Um, yeah. You know where medical supplies are are basically being flown into the U.S. Maybe a, a county in New Jersey uh, has ordered some masks or something like that, and the federal government is able to swoop in and kind of seize those materials. Tell us a little bit about kind of what's been going on, and I think this is maybe something you know we're starting to to write about here at TPM and elsewhere, and but might be a little bit under the radar for some of our listeners still. Right. So there's, I mean, the the big picture is just chaos. Um, we're seeing that, uh, you know, as recently as late February and early March, the Commerce Department was still encouraging U.S. suppliers to export goods. There was actually, as China was kind of coming down off their crisis in mid-late February, they basically relaxed their import standards for medical supplies. And as we know, it's been a long-term goal of the Trump administration to, you know, to break into the Chinese market, to sort of, uh, you know, equalize the trade imbalance with China. So there was actually a bulletin put out by 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 the Commerce Department at the very end of February saying, hey, there's these great new opportunities that you can sell your product in China. Uh, So they were caught, the the federal government was caught very late on this. The first orders they made, I believe, you know, the the first orders at all that the federal government made for things like masks and ventilators and stuff like that was on March 12th, and that was a very small order, like three or four million dollars, and then they did a very big order on March 21st. But again, that's when like the country, you know, half the country was already in, 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 in lockdown. So having gotten such a late start, they then moved in a dramatically different direction. Uh, some of which a lot of people were encouraging. It's clear now they've been using this Defense Production Act uh, not only to compel companies to produce things, but in some cases to basically confiscate goods, redirect them from one place to another. And so we've had, um, we've, it's been this hodgepodge because on the one hand, the federal government's position has been states, you need to buy your own stuff. And if you get into an absolute crisis where, you know, 
people are going to die right and left, we'll give you some stuff from the federal government. But basically, you got to buy your own stuff, and you got to buy it on the open market. And But what has been happening is, while that is happening, the federal government has also been going in and bidding against the states, which kind of complicates things. And then you've also have cases where a state or a hospital system will have bought some goods and then while it's being shipped to that state or hospital system or even in some cases right when it arrives the federal government comes in and confiscates it and sends it somewhere else and we're still trying to at tpm we're still trying to get a handle i mean because these stories have been very vague often the 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 you know, government or locality or the hospital system, they just know it was taken and they don't really know what government agency did it or under what legal authority and, and, and stuff like that. And so we're trying to get a handle on that and our reporters are, are actively reporting on that right now. While that is happening, you also have this thing, what, what you're talking about, David, which is this Project Air Bridge. And, uh, looked at through the most generous light it's basically this there is an existing system of maybe half a dozen or so big national medical supply distributors that most hospitals and states and nursing homes and everybody else buys their stuff from um and as all of this shook out most of them just ran out of stuff there wasn't enough stuff so the federal plan coming out of the White House task force is let's organize flights. And, and a key part to keep in mind here is that not only is there a shortage of medical supplies, but a lot of the international transport infrastructure has been disrupted. A lot of, normally a lot of this stuff comes by ship, which is far too slow for the current emergency. And a lot of international flight, uh, you know, international air transport has been disrupted. So the idea is let's, at the federal level, organize flights that'll go right over to China or other places in Asia, grab the stuff and bring it back here. So you guys it, who are the major distributors, buy the stuff, tell us what airport it's at in China, we'll fly over there, bring it back. So. At one level, this makes a lot of sense. You need to get this stuff quickly. And, you know, it has the federal government maybe kind of picking up some of the tab for the transport. But, you know, you need the stuff and you need to get supply into the country. But what that has led to is that the federal government helps bring this stuff over, you know, back to the U.S. They hand it over to the, the private distributors and then the states have to bid on it. So, so you have this very kind of perverse thing where the, what the federal government is doing is still putting it into a, a pipeline that all the states have to bid against each other, and it bids up the price. Now, and then what we learned in a New York Times article, uh, I think two days ago, or maybe a uh, night before last, is they've cut a deal where they say, all right, we're going to bring all your stuff here, and then when we get it here half of it you have to sort of sell to this place that place you know where we tell you to sell it because that's where the critical need is or as we define it and half the stuff you just kind of sell to the highest bidder and again so you have this mix of government mandate you know sort of uh command and control which is a lot of what you you need during a crisis but it's being mixed with private commercial transactions at the same time. And there's a lot of problems with that. And what you have with these seizures, and again, we really don't, we and I'm sure other journalists are trying to get a handle now on exactly what is happening. And there's a lot of suspicion, like when you, you know, when you seize a shipment going to a blue state, are you just sending it to a red state? Now, we don't really have, we have hints that things like that might be happening, but we really don't have a sort of a global view. But it's the Trump administration. They have a, a long record of running the federal government, you know, for their people, kind of key supporters in, in, in red states. So you have all of this happening. 
you have this mix of uh, you know kind of federal control, emergency emergency control, mixing with private commercial transactions in a very weird way. And it's very hard to get a handle on what's happening. And a lot of the states and hospitals and places, they don't know what's happening. So it's all confused and everybody's trying to figure out what's going on. Yeah. I know Trump tweeted this morning that he had approved maybe like 100 ventilators being sent to Colorado. And Cory Gardner was celebrating that news. And he's obviously a Republican senator up for re-election in a mostly red, but sort of purplish state. And so I'm not sure if this is an example of, you know, those ventilators being denied, you know, other possibly more liberal states, but it just is interesting to see which, which orders and which kind of, you know, items Trump is celebrating on Twitter, basically. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, 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 it's a really good example that it is, you know, probably under any under any administration in a in a crisis like this you're going to get a lot of chaos a lot of unclarity about what is happening but the trump administration both over the last three years and during this crisis has a really bad record of of uh acting in a way that treats american citizens in different parts of the country on an equal basis i mean we've seen lots and lots of examples of that where yeah. the 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 good deals are made for red states and critical red states and that's that is that is 100% clear before yeah. this happened and there's hints that it's happening now and again they have very little credibility so uh you know we're all trying to find out more information about what's happening right so let's turn to um i guess a few tiny slivers of good news in the last few days uh, it feels like there's not not much to cling on to. So, you know, these are early signs that, you know, in New York, the number of hospitalizations have kind of been stabilizing a little bit. We had Dr. Deborah Burks, who was uh, the White House Coronavirus Task Force Coordinator, talking this morning about, you know, some of the social distancing, the mitigation efforts are, are starting to have a little bit of an effect. And she really urged people to keep up the social distance, to keep up the efforts to combat the coronavirus, because, you know, if everyone just goes... Uh, to concerts and movie theaters and all these kind of big crowded and sporting arenas, all these crowded places that, you know, there could be a second wave. And, we're, you know, there's concern that in the fall, when the temperature drops again, we'll have, you know, another another situation like we're in now. Josh, what do you make of these early signs? I mean, you've been following the New York numbers really closely. Is it too soon to really tell whether we're kind of doing the right thing or are you encouraged by any of these kind of early indicators? It seems pretty clear that the, that the numbers in, in New York are starting to go in the right direction. Uh, it's not clear yet whether it's just a, you know, a deceleration of the bad numbers or actually whether, you know, you're kind of, as, as people have talked about, coming down from the apex. It makes sense in, in just the most, you know, crude epidemiological terms. You have most people in their house and not getting, not getting close to other people transmission is going to go down. I mean, there's no question that transmission will go down. The question is how, whether it'll go down enough. And uh, after um, a couple weeks or so, that will show up in new cases. And then a little longer than that, it'll show up in a decline in people dying from the disease because you have, you know, a little less than a week incubation period. People get sick. They're usually, they usually don't get really sick for you know maybe almost another week so so all of that makes sense it's 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 pointing in 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 the right direction i think the big immediate question is whether you sort of come down off the apex or whether you have something a little bit like what you've maybe seen in italy where you stay on a plateau for a while you know up until i think uh you know yesterday there had been like a week where the number of fatalities every day in Italy had definitely come down, but still five or 600 people are dying every day. Uh, so it seems clear that we're seeing some positive signs. It seems like this draconian social distancing is, is, is working. Uh, and I think there's, there, there's, 
a decent amount of evidence that the social distancing that has happened around the country has sort of tamped down what's happening, that it's starting to seem like you're not going to get many places, maybe any places, that have the level of outbreak that you've had in 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 New York City, which is obviously great news. And now we have the question of just, you know, navigating through this period, trying to make sure people don't let up on this on the social distancing either at the mass level of people just getting weary of it or thinking that you know the worst is over and 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 sort of getting lax or frankly at the at the national level of trump just getting antsy again and starting talking about oh we got to open it up you know open it up next week and uh and then you know the the big thing that i am thinking about though and i have to imagine that that it's the thing that a lot of people in government are starting to focus on now is that, you know, hopefully in the next few weeks, we will be past this crisis, immediate crisis period where you have, you know, very high death tolls every day. And then we, we, we'll, we will be faced with a much longer period after the initial spike of of deaths is over people will still be dying people will still be getting sick but past the first crisis then facing a period of as much as a year maybe more than a year before we have a vaccine and that means that you know you cannot keep everybody in their house for a year that is it is unsustainable in social terms it is catastrophic in economic terms over time you will start having, you know, bad health effects, you know, just from the, the, the social isolation and breakdowns of supply chains, blah, 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 blah. But what do you do in that interim time? And, and it seems, I think it is clear, I think everybody who's paying attention to this realizes that you need some version of mass testing, both the testings for infections and testing for antibodies. So you can say kind of on a daily basis, things are stable, things are going up, things are going down. Then you can sort of make social policy, you know, on that, uh, on that basis. And how do you, you know, how do you, how do you set up an interim normal where, um, you know, most people are back to work, but are you wearing face masks? Are you still kind of not going to restaurants? And, and finding a way to manage that interim normal is going to just be a major, major challenge. And it's going to be a challenge around the world, but, you know, here in the United States, we have to figure out how we do it here. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't know if you uh, have been, you guys have been reading, reporting overnight about Wuhan and China kind of reopening up, right? And the, the lockdown on travel, the really, really strict, uh, you know, mo- you know, measures against movement or traveling in and out of the city have started to be eased. And, you know, there was a pretty interesting New York Times story last night about Wuhan opening back up, but what it looks like is so different from what it was. And I, it just kind of made me think maybe that's a bit of our future is, you know, it's just people clad in masks, you know, able to, to hug each other and get out in public, but the economic impact was totally devastating. You know, so many jobs lost, so many businesses shuttered, and it's sort of like, we're all kind of looking forward to this moment when we can get back out of our houses, but just what that looks like is totally unclear. And, and Kate, I'm kind of curious in what the, what the streets are looking like in D.C., because in New York, I think just even over the last week, I think nine out of 10 people I see out on the sidewalks if I'm running an errand are wearing masks. And that's pretty recent. It's a pretty recent phenomenon in a way. I mean, you started to see it on the subways in the kind of late winter months and more and more in kind of crowded areas. But it just is kind of the norm now, especially after the CDC is recommending people just wear a cloth covering over their face. I mean, it just takes some getting used to seeing that when you're walking down the street. So I'm curious, you know, a place like DC that's a bit behind the curve that New York is currently on, but is really slated to, you know, have an influx of cases in the next month or two. What's the, what's that looked like there where you're at? Well, you know, it's funny because we only moved here 
two weeks before the shutdown happened or so. Uh, and we're still marveling at that point at how uncrowded it is here compared to New York mm. to, so, to, so, to some degree. I'm sure the streets are really empty, but through you know our like New York eyes, it has seemed empty from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it feels a little bit maybe at less of a fever pitch here than New York, which makes sense based on where the two places are. Um, definitely a lot of masks and a lot of, you know, kind of homemade jerry-rigged masks. Um, I'd say on the weekends, there are a lot of people who like get takeout from restaurants and who sit in the parks, but social distancing is being pretty, pretty carefully observed, I would say. Um, and in a way it's just kind of logistically easier to do that here than New York, because obviously it's so much less crowded and even, physical attributes of the city like the sidewalks are much wider and things like that um so yeah you have that but it is kind of it's a bit weird having dc be a step behind and in in a lot of cases be a step behind virginia and maryland which is you know we're all basically the same thing um but you know when virginia and maryland both kind of ordered the the stay-at-home orders within days of each other and dc was still just at the point where you know, all non-essentials had just closed. So yeah, a, a bit of a step behind here, I think. But I think that might end up being a good thing because people will get kind of shaken from news like places in New York that had such earlier peaks and maybe will observe more strict social distancing than, you know, New York did at this point in their process. And then that'll end up being making the peak smaller here whenever it does hit. Yeah, you know one one thing you said, Kate, that certainly consistent with my memory. I lived in D.C. for five or six years. Just that basic point, when just when you walk walking on the streets in D.C., it is very very different. The concentration of people under normal circumstances is dramatically different. The sidewalks are much larger. Um, just the just the the literal concentration of people is different the 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 metro it's you don't have anything like what you have in the new york city subways with the con you know the people pushed together just at every level uh it is dramatically different and you know the i've lived in boston i've lived in providence rhode island i've lived in los angeles um I would say maybe there's something a little closer to Los Angeles in in Boston, but really, none of those cities are remotely as concentrated as as uh, as New York, and I mean certainly in Manhattan, which is the most the most dense. And so it's partly for those who who haven't spent a lot of time in New York, partly that is just that, especially in Manhattan the density of population is far greater than anywhere else in the United States. And I think that applies for the entirety of New York City, just more more in Manhattan. But it's also things like the sub, uh, the, the sidewalks are narrower. The subway is different. So, you know, after this is all done, I think there will be lots of studies that will look at how much was this just kind of baked in that it was going to hit New York with the ferocity that was that was just a lot greater than than anywhere else because again I've lived in a number of cities and I've lived you know I haven't the the the, the parts of the country I haven't lived in are places that are just much less dense anyway and New York is just in a different category about just density of the people you are in proximity to every single day yeah, I feel like that was definitely top of mind, especially in February, as the as the virus was spreading and and the risk became a bit more real for us here in the U.S. Just being on the subways at rush hour, you know, there are times when literally you cannot get on a train because there are too many people on it, and you have to wait for it to pass and get on the next one. And I just remember being acutely aware of how what close contact you're in with people day after day. And and, and be clear, be clear for our listeners. You don't mean like, you know, when when you you get into a, uh, a minivan or kind of an SUV, maybe there's six seats and you say, ah, too many. You, what we're talking about here is you cannot physically press yourself into the car yeah. because people will always, you know, everybody kind of 
push up against the other people. I mean, it's a funny thing because obviously it is, you know, people know when you're just sort of scrunching versus when, when people are, uh, you know, harassing people or inappropriate right. touching. But even in, in the normal circumstances in New York City, in these subway cars, in, in, in rush hour, people will be pushing against each other in ways that you have something kind of like full body contact with total totally. strangers. And that is normal. <laughs> that is normal. So, you know, yeah. it's just, it's crazy, you know, from a, yeah. from a, it's just New York, except when that, that a lot of us love, except when you start talking about infectious diseases and it's nuts. <laughs> totally. It's nuts. Yeah, it's totally true. Well, maybe that's a good place to end. Any other, any other parting thoughts for our listeners as we're kind of in the, yeah, like you said, Josh, week four, going into week five of the of the lockdown here. Well, maybe a, this is just a personal positive note, but one of the strangest things about this pandemic to me is that it's kind of coming into full tilt as the weather's getting nice. It just feels emotionally discordant that it's totally. so beautiful outside, but there's this lingering pal of anxiety, you know, but... I'm someone who I've never liked running. I played a lot of sports in school, but running it was always, you know, the punishment, the conditioning. Kind right. of Do thing. a lap, take a lap. Exactly. For a yeah. <laughs> but now, kind of linking those two things, how beautiful it is outside, and then the time I get to experience that during the day is, you know, when I'm done with work and go on my run, has made it into such a lovely experience and I've always thought people who like speak highly about running are nuts because it's obviously physically painful and like everything but I have to say it's been such a highlight you know of of this time where so much of it is indoors to kind of link that to something I didn't previously like doing has really transformed me into a runner I guess it's funny. I have a, I have a kind of a similar experience. I mean, I um, before this happened, my routine was go to the gym every day, and I do an elliptical trainer. And uh, one of the reasons I don't run is that a few years ago I tore my ACL, and I ended up, you know, kind of in consultation with a doctor because of the particular injury. I didn't get it repaired. I have no pain. I'm fully active. Blah 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 blah. And when this started, I tried running. And I didn't re-injure myself, but it was kind of clear to me that was not going to work. I could sort of tell the knee was under stress. So what I've been doing is I've been going on walks, you know, like an hour-long walk, um, which is obviously not the same as running, but it's a some level of, of, of totally. physical activity. And uh, I have a similar sense. I'm like, oh, man, can't wait to my walk. It's the best. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas normally <laughs> kind of like, man, walking is like, you know, just a purely utilitarian thing. I'm trying to get somewhere and get to whatever right. I'm doing and it's, it's whatever. But yeah, I have a similar, you know, kind of like a similar sense of that because <laughs> you're just indoors and kind of you're indoors. And, and, and as I think a lot of people are learning, it becomes a challenge to segment your day. You know, what is the time when I'm just kind of in the morning laying in bed before I get up and what is work and what is, what is dinner and all that kind of stuff so it's a it's a it, it's a big thing and I, I will say one one more point and I, I don't know if if you guys are, are are experiencing this that I God, I may have even mentioned this in the last episode I'm losing track but I saw a video recently someone put together a video you know kind of be inspired by New York kind of thing and it was just New York scenes before this started the subways, walking down the street, the bustling, the people playing, you know, pickup basketball and stuff. And I missed it, right? I, I had to, I missed it, but it also seems so alien to me. The idea of just freely kind of commingling around other people. Uh, and I just think that, that um, I mean, maybe, maybe once it's all done, we'll just sort of throw ourselves into it like it never happened but i imagine at least for myself it'll be a little difficult to kind of go back to that right it just it, it it has become so ingrained even i was talking with my with my wife about when we watch shows now tv shows movies totally 
you see people like, oh, shaking hands. You're like, ah, what, <laughs> what are they thinking, right? Yeah. <laughs> so it's just we've internalized this sort of uh, protective uh, trauma that will be, that will be, yeah. that will take a while to, to unwind. I think that's totally true. Yeah, I feel the same way if I'm watching a movie or a TV show. It's at like a crowded bar or a restaurant or a park or any of these things. It's kind of like, ah, danger. But anyways, if our listeners take one thing away, it is go out for a walk, go out for a run, keep your distance. But I think getting outside is totally crucial. I mean, there's just no other way to really survive this this episode without getting a bit of a mental health break and getting outside. So try to take advantage of that when you can. And also, not, not just mental health. Certainly, you know, if you're really young, it probably affects you less. But even for healthy adults, long periods of time with zero physical activity, and by that, I, I don't mean just not, not going to the gym. I mean, not you know, like sitting in one place for most of the time, that can have a real impact on your health. So yeah. just to get out and walk and move around, that's, that's a pretty important thing. Absolutely. All right. So uh, remember that uh, Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee is the sponsor of the Josh Marshall Podcast. Uh, you can go to Grady'sColdBrew.com. You can order the liquid version. You can uh, order the, they call them bean bags. It's, you know, it's bags of ground that you can, that you can brew it yourself. So uh, they are still up and running a critical service in Bronx, New York. You can order it at Grady'sColdBrew.com. And if you order it that way, you can use the promo code TPM to get a 20% discount. You can also order it at, uh, at Amazon and they're you know, obviously, you'll get it sometime. Yeah, you, who knows when you'll get it? Uh, and markets, if you're going to sort of, you know, social distance-sized uh, markets, you can buy it there. And remember, uh, Grady's Cold Brew is a uh, important place to, um, you know, uh, great to support them. But local independent businesses in your own area, whatever the key, the the way I look at it is, be sure to support companies, especially independent companies, small businesses that that it is important to you personally are still going to be around in six months or next year because they're all under stress and uh, it's it's mutual protection, it's solidarity that, that, that goes beyond um, uh, physical health to also preserving the version of the world that we want to <laughs> exist the, you know, a, a year out or something like that yeah. so uh, Grady'sColdBrew.com and, uh, and every independent business in your neck of the woods. Absolutely. All right. Be well. Stay safe. Stay healthy, you guys. All right. Later, Thanks, folks. Guys. Bye. Bye. How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage get gig speeds powered by fiber from cox it's internet built for tomorrow today cox always building better download speeds up to one gigabit per second cox internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection speeds vary and are not guaranteed cox terms and other restrictions may apply